Have you heard of decision fatigue? It's that mental exhaustion someone experiences after making just a boatload of decisions. And if you reach that point, it becomes exponentially harder to deal with more of them. Well, there is an antidote, and in the words of our guest, it's simple. He says, put yourself in a situation where you don't have a choice. Well, now where would that be? His recommendation, how about at the top or bottom of the planet, surrounded by nothing but ice and snow for hundreds of miles, as far as you can see. And your choice, your only choice, if survival is important to you, is to move forward. This is where Eric Larson thrives. Polar adventurer, expedition guide, dog musher, and educator, Eric Larson has spent the past 15 years of his life traveling in some of the most remote and wild places left on Earth. He traversed 550 miles of shifting sea ice and open ocean to get to the North Pole. That wasn't enough, so off he went to the South Pole. 600 frozen miles and 41 days later, he made it. Then back to the North Pole in winter, then to the top of Everest. Shall I go on? Let's get into it with host Eric Weinmayer and guest Eric Larson. You might want your puffy jacket as you listen to this episode, to stay warm, of course. I'm producer Diedrich Jonk, and this is the No Barriers Podcast. It's easy to talk about the successes, but what doesn't get talked about enough is the struggle. My name is Eric Weinmayer. I've gotten the chance to ascend Mount Everest, to climb the tallest mountain in every continent, to kayak the Grand Canyon, and I happen to be blind. It's been a struggle to live what I call a no barriers life, to define it, to push the parameters of what it means. And part of the equation is diving into the learning process and trying to illuminate the universal elements that exist along the way. And that unexplored terrain between those dark places we find ourselves in and the summit exists a map. That map, that way forward, is what we call no barriers. Hey everyone, welcome to the No Barriers Podcast. This is Eric Weinmayer, and man, it's so awesome to have my friend Eric Larson on today. Eric, it's so cool. You and I uh, met a couple years back, and uh, you offered to take me and my friend Skylar on a little exploratory um, ski around Grand Lake. Colorado in the winter with the idea, just the possibility that maybe we'd ski across Greenland, which we haven't done yet. But um, no. but that was a really incredible um, experience. I learned so much. And I learned uh, one thing that, you know, skiing, polar skiing is so different than anything I'd done. I thought there'd be this massive crossover between mountain climbing and uh, what you do. And I was sort of surprised that there wasn't as much, you know, uh, crossover as, as I thought. <laughs> so anyway, good morning. Yeah, good morning. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, and I keep uh, poking Skylar and you every kind of year. I send a very non-committal um, email to just <laughs> remind you that I think it would still be a great trip. It requires, like you said, a different mindset. And so I understand as someone who's kind of been drawn to the mountains uh, more um, that the long, boring, freezing cold suffer fest isn't necessarily um, 
on the top of your priority yeah. list, but I, but I do think it is, there's a lot of value in doing a trip like that at some point. So over the All next right, we'll 10 years, I'll keep, I'll keep emailing you. Yeah, exactly. Now, so you are, were the first person to climb Mount Everest and reach the poles in a single year. So, um, so what, what would you say to folks in terms of the difference between climbing a mountain like Everest and skiing to one of the poles? What, what's the compare and contrast? Hey, that's an interesting question um, because they are different. Even just the North Pole and South Pole are completely different. But just in general terms, polar travel versus mountain travel are um, ha- have some components that are similar. They're in, they can be in cold climates. You're, you're dealing with these big objectives that can seem overwhelming at times. But that being said, kind of on a more practical and pragmatic level, in polar travel, we're kind of really focused on efficiency in a way um, that's much different than in mountain travel. I mean, in mountain travel, of course, you're trying to save your resources, but you're usually climbing up, setting up a base camp and kind of bringing resources up and going back down. And oftentimes you have a lot of rest in between those carries. You have the opportunity, at least in modern kind of Everest expeditions to have things like chairs and be very comfortable in in a base camp situation. And in, and in polar travel, it's a little more kind of old school in the sense that it's self-supported. So everything that we need to carry for the entire journey or to live and survive, we need to carry with us. And so that means we're very focused on the types of food, the types of gear, the weights, how we travel throughout the day, how we set up camp. Um, and... Oftentimes, I call it death by 1,000 cuts because each day you're losing a little bit of energy that you never get back. And so it's a little bit like playing a chess game um, so that you can make your save up enough energy so that you have enough reserves to make that final push, um, not just after a day or a week, but several weeks and, and, and several months at times. Yeah, like I noticed, like the tents are different. The way you set up the tents, uh, like I think even the stoves were different. Like I was really surprised. And then, um, and I remember you talk about death by a thousand cuts. Uh, I got a, you know, I was wearing these polar boots that you recommended, and and uh, I was skiing like, you know, kind of sliding a little bit on my foot, and I got a massive blister. And and we were uh, talking about the fact that, like, if that was in the South Pole or the North Pole, that would have been a, maybe a game ender. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. yeah. You, you well, can't the- really stop and just, like, change, you know, um, you know, put a Band-Aid on your foot when it's, like, 40 below zero in a whiteout, right? So um, there was yeah. just tons to learn. So what are the, all those deaths of a thousand cuts? Oh, man. I, I mean, it, 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 that, that's a very open-ended question, obviously. Um, it's, it's broad. I mean, it can be anything from, like you mentioned, just your physical body and just a blister or a spot where your clothing can chafe you or just your overall self-care, the amount of calories that you're getting, um, how efficient you're skiing, how efficient you set up your camp. I often talk about this in terms of like, if you take 10 minutes longer every day to set up your camp, that's 
over an hour every week that you've lost and over the course of a, of a journey to the South Pole, that's a whole day of travel that you've lost just by taking that extra 10 minutes every day. And so each one of these aspects to what we do, how we melt snow, how we eat, how we sleep, how we ski, how we take care of our bodies, all those things add up. And that's similar to mountaineering. Um, we just don't think about it as much of a hyper-focused way because we have these opportunities to kind of rest and recharge a little bit more in big mountains. Yeah, because like even Mount Everest, you know, you like climb a day and then you maybe sit in your tent a day. You know what I mean? Uh, you're not on the go every single day. And and uh, so, yeah, that I think um, I think polar exploring, at least in my little tiny taste, seems even way more difficult than 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 mountain climbing. You have no Sherpas. It's yeah. totally self-supported. It just seems like. You know, I, I was kind of blown away by the amount of suffering uh, that that it involved beyond mountaineering. Yeah, and and mountaineering, make no mistake about it, there there are very uh, there are a lot of difficult aspects, and there's also a lot of objective hazards that you don't necessarily get all the time. Um, but in polar travel, it's you, and um, you're responsible for yourself. Personally, I think that has a lot more value. I mean, there are mountaineering trips where people are traveling in more alpine style. Right. And you're going into a remote area and, you know, you're supporting yourself in, in, a, in a more simple aesthetic. And I think in that sense, that's more true adventure. And I, and I feel like that has a lot of value because you see very quickly the consequences of your actions. You mentioned your boots. You know, if your boot um, is fitting wrong and you get a blister, that has a, that has a very potentially dire impact on your ability to succeed, let alone survive. And so very quickly you come up against the elements in a way where there are no buffers. And equally, you come up against yourself. And um, because you have nothing but time to think about um, who you are, where you're going and what you're trying to do. And, and as physically difficult as these adventures are, I think the mental aspect of managing these big distances and big spaces and time on this scale that we're not really used to in our lives now is, is very difficult and can be overwhelming uh, on a good day. Yeah. Have you had some spectacular failures in you know some of your explorations i feel like most or, of the i mean because i always read about your successes like where you're you know and we're going to talk about those and i think the conversation will get deeper but i'm just like i want to kind of cover the bases at first here but yeah so um like yeah what about you, you know you don't hear about about the the failures where you're just like you know you get 10 miles through the snow and and somebody breaks through uh, a snow bridge into the water or yeah. through, I could think you call them pans and the expedition's over like this third totally. day. <laughs> I mean, I feel like I have about a 20% sex success rate in anything that I do. So <laughs> I, I've so 80% uh, failure. <laughs> oh, realistically. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, you know, part of that I'm actually proud of in the sense that there, when you're trying to push the leading edge of adventure, in modern times, which is hard because it's not, we're not exploring, we're not finding a place for the first time. People have been all over the world as map, but we're trying to find these small little edges of 
how can we do these traditional adventures in more unique styles or in new sports or with a more pure aesthetic or faster, whatever it is. And so oftentimes in those situations, there's just a lot of unknowns. And so you, you just kind of have to, one of my models is let's just go up there and see what happens because at a certain point, we don't know all this information. We just have to try it. And, and so that's where for me, a lot of those failures come in and the, and the hard part with polar travel is these trips are prohibitively expensive. You know, I'm not a millionaire. Um, and so it requires a lot of fundraising and kind of hype, so to speak. And so it's hard coming back from, from, from those things. But on a personal level, I actually am pretty psyched on that because at least I tried, I mean, getting just to the starting line is hard enough. And so, you know, I tried to ride my bike to the South Pole in 2012, failed. I tried to do a solo unsupported ski speed record in 2018, failed. Um, Back in 2005, we tried to cross the Arctic Ocean in the summertime, failed. Um, So I I feel like failure... you know, I don't mind using the word failure, but I don't really look at what I do as as any of these expeditions as an endpoint. It's just part of my process. And so, you know, one of the reasons why I like polar travel is when you get to the North Pole, that it's an arbitrary point on the planet. There's no distinction in the ice from one, from you know halfway there or three quarters of the way there. And so, for me, I enjoy the process. And so on a kind of outward communication level, yes, they're failures, but on a, on a personal level, they're just kind of points along the way where it was more difficult and I didn't necessarily achieve the goals at that time. Right. Right. You're right. I mean, failures like just this concrete word, but you're right. I mean, it's still an amazing experience. And, uh, and I think that's really interesting that you're talking about like that nondescript, say, North Pole uh, point of stopping. You know what I mean? It kind of reminds me of like Forrest Gump when he's running and across the country back and forth yeah. and eventually just says, okay, I'm done now. See you later. And like you get to the North Pole and you're like, yeah, it's just a patch of snow. It looks exactly the same as, as what's behind me, right? Yeah, it's complete anticlimax. So, but, you know, and, and similar to mountains, I think sometime having that point is this arbitrary parameter that helps define the journey and it, and yeah. it gives you a reason. And so um, I, I think there is value in, in having that objective and that physical point. Um, but philosophically for me, I, I'm definitely more interested in the process and, and all the things that go into it, not just on the journey itself, but as you know, all the things that go in. I mean, you've been involved in some big projects and oftentimes, you know, I watched your um, Grand Canyon film and, and what you don't see in that in many films is the years. Well, there is a little bit in that film, but the years of effort that go into all the preparation and all the steps and whatnot. And so that's where, when you get out in that, in that adventure and it falls short, that's only part of it because there's this whole bigger picture that's part, that's part of the endeavor. Well, speaking of preparation, so like, do you, uh, 
sit in like ice baths or like cold showers and all that kind of stuff that like, you know, Wim Hof made it so popular yeah. today. Yeah. Uh, what's your thinking on that kind of preparation? Uh, you know, I don't, I, I you're like, I'm cold enough yeah. on these journeys. Right. I don't need to be I, cold in my leisure time. Totally. <laughs> I like being comfortable in cold places. And I right. can tell you with a hundred percent honesty, I do not like getting in cold water at all. <laughs> um, cold shower, whatever it is. So the whole ice bath thing, like more power to everybody who's doing it, but that is not me. Um, <laughs> me either. I hate uh, cold showers. So same. So uh, I, I kind of have this philosophy of train hard and travel easy, and so um, you know, on the bigger trips, I'm very focused on the physical aspects of training and and mimicking that um, kind of motion and effort and it's a more of a strength endurance you know like i'm a very average athlete overall and average person in terms of my build and whatnot and so i'm not the strongest guy but i just kind of keep plugging away a a basic level of fitness and and then kind of start ramping up for any of these bigger trips of course as i get older i can't just do things off the couch um like i used to and so right there's kind of this constant effort and, um, and I would say now in my guiding life, a little bit more stress because I am pulled in a lot of different directions with being a parent and and other commitments. And so, um, that kind of training, that strength endurance training, whether it be pulling a sled, you know, hiking up a, a mountain with a heavy backpack in, in the off season, we're pulling, you know, using our harness to pull tires, um, is a, is a much more important aspect of it. And then on my bigger trips, there's also a lot that goes into just the gear and equipment, the planning, the figuring out the systems, um, you know, understanding what might work and what might not work. And now it's not as difficult. There's better equipment, but, um, and I have my systems more dialed, but 25 years ago, we were kind of developing equipment and, and, um, you know, testing these different modes of travel and trying to figure all that. And that takes years of of planning and preparation at times. Well, one of those systems is like, you know, temperature maintenance, uh, which, you know, probably people who haven't been in those really cold places don't think about, you know, Um, I was on Mount Katahdin in February one year and it was 40 below zero when we summited. And like, I just thought the most fascinating part of that was trying to figure out like what to wear, how not to sweat, you know, like I remember, um, my face mask, my balaclava pulled down a little bit and there was like a, maybe like two centimeters of skin exposed between my goggle and my balaclava. And my friend went, Whoa, 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 your cheek just turned totally white. You're like, let's take care of that. You know, I'm like, Oh my gosh, you know, and that happened in like 10 seconds, you know? So, so yeah, Talk us through just a tiny bit about your experience with temperatures and how you can control that. Yeah, and in the, in the um, you know, we're dealing with a very small margin of safety in the sense that there's a very small margin of comfort within those extreme temperatures. And because we're working so hard, as you mentioned, your body is creating a lot of heat and you're sweating. And so you have to be very careful. Um, with the types of clothes you're wearing, how you're venting so that you don't overheat. 
um, so that if you do stop, um, that you don't get too cold um, very quickly or become hypothermic with just in a few minutes. And I kind of advocate this strategy that I call thoughtfulness. And it's not traveling against the environment, but it's traveling. It's not man, you know, over nature. It's it's traveling with nature um, and with the environment. And um, and so it's kind of assessing the situation, assessing your body, assessing how you're feeling and adjusting accordingly. And not in this hyper fashion where you're stopping all the time, but in this in this more kind of a calm manner uh, where you're making these adjustments as need be um, and maintaining that equilibrium as you travel. It's a little easier to do in polar travel for the most part because we're not kind of on a steeper incline where our right. activity level increases and decreases as much. Um, but we are still focused in the same way. And I think, yeah. I think a lot of mountaineering um, kind of adventures would benefit from a little bit more of that idea of thoughtfulness and, and some of that, um, some of our schedule in the sense that we have a very rigorous um, schedule that we travel uh, through throughout the day just so that we're not stopping all the time and, and so that we're minimizing the peaks and troughs of our body temperature so that we can maintain that equilibrium a little better. Yeah. I remember coming down on Denali and I, um, you know, and I was, we had just been moving for like 10 hours trying to get down the mountain and, uh, I, I, I wasn't maintaining well enough. I, I wasn't eating, uh, just cause I was like a horse racing for the barn, you know, and I went hypothermic and I remember Chris Morris, our team leader got really pissed. He had to set up a tent and we had to, you know, make some soup and it slowed us down. But I was like, you know, I got to get inside for a minute. And I ate some soup and immediately I was like, okay, I'm warm again. This is like crazy. So you must have had that, you know, where people break through the ice or, or they just, you know, completely crash and you got to, what, what do you do? You set up a tent, warm them up. Well, we can do that, but we, I would say that for 99.9% of the time, we just avoid those situations. So in your, (laughs) okay. So in your Denali scenario, this is where I always consider myself the weakest link in everything I do. Um, And so what I try to do is set up these systems so that I can protect myself from myself. And so you're coming down from a mountain, you want to get down, but we're um, accountable to time. And so we're taking a break every hour and a half or whatever, whatever we decide on to stop and eat and, and maintain that energy level, that equilibrium, hydration, whatever it is. And so, again, it's a little harder to do in mountaineering because you can just be, oh, let's just get up there. Right. Um, but that being said, like having that schedule, we mostly avoid those problems. And then the other thing is, is we, we talk a lot about this idea of selfishness within the group. Um, because there is this mindset that you can get into like, oh, I'm going to hold, if I stop now and eat or, or adjust my layers, I'm going to hold up the group. And that's right. going to impact our ability to, to meet our objective or get down safely or whatever it is. But in reality, in the situation that you described, that actually impacts the group more adversely totally. than if you would have stopped, you know, 30 minutes prior. And so it's it's kind of a mantra that we talk about a lot in this idea of 
the best way to be a, group, a good team member is to be selfish first. And so if we need to stop and adjust a layer, then we do that. If we need to stop and eat or drink, then we do that. And it's not necessarily convenient for the other people all the time, but it's part of our process as a group to be able to achieve the objective as a group and be safe. And, and, and ultimately, you know, if you're in that situation where you're so hypothermic and then there's another crisis that happens, like somebody falls through a crevasse or whatever it ends up being, then you're not able to assist in any kind of meaningful way either. And so you kind of are jeopardizing the rest of the team in that situation. And so there's this individual responsibility and selfishness that are very important in polar travel and I think in all expedition life. But that's where kind of this idea of, of, of being more self-supported, being more independent, um, I really emphasize that with the groups I'm guiding as well and model it too, you know, because I, it, I don't want to be wasting time um, out there. I don't want to be freezing my butt off. And so I'll take layers off to adjust them. And as, as a leader of these trips, oftentimes you kind of always have to have the upper edge on these situations right. should, should anything happen. And so it's a mindset. It's a process like anything else it takes practice because like i said your mind is is being like oh i'm not i'm going to hurt the rest of the group i'm not going to be able to keep up it's you know whatever and so we just kind of get in this process where if we need to stop we stop and and don't get me wrong there's times where i sit there and i'm like are you kidding me like we got to stop right now but <laughs> you know I also have my face covered up so nobody can see my expression. <laughs> they can't see your frown. <laughs> yeah, and so I, and I, I don't know if you remember, but we may, we make these face masks that cover our face that attach to the goggles. Totally. And what I used to do is just draw a smile on the outside of that, so that when I would look back, <laughs> it looked like I was smiling, even if even if I was frowning. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, well, you just mentioned the mind, so. Um, that's like a real big part of polar exploration. I, I think I, I feel it's, you know, and then back to my Denali experience, I met this guy, Chris Morris, who was our guide on that mountain. And, uh, he had these philosophies called positive pessimisms and he's this old yeah. cranky guy from, you know, Ridge, he lived in Alaska and he's like, you know, sure it's cold out here, but at least it's windy. That kind yeah. of thing, you know? And you have all this great dark humor, too. Like, you even call some of your camps, like, Camp Cold. And yeah. I don't know. So it seems like you use a lot of dark humor uh, as as you're exploring. Is that a, a part of the equation? Part of, like, you know, just being able to have fun and maintain a sense of control as you're in these hostile environments? Yeah, I, th I think it's a lot of things. I mean, it's actually admitting that you don't have a lot of control. Right. Um, and as well as just understanding that I, I think part of it is just not taking yourself too seriously. I think we all can think our perspective is, you know, the most important, the most valuable um, and our objective is more important than anything else. And so I think being a little lighthearted about the situation can have a positive impact as well as a little bit of that gallows humor to just make light of these serious situations. Because as you know, when you're dealing with a lot of uncertainty and fatigue and fear, it's hard. 
And it's challenging and it's mentally overwhelming. And so to be able to make light of those difficult situations might be the little spark that kind of gets you through that moment. That being said, I have I have a similar mindset to what you were talking about, and it's more of um, a realistic optimism in the sense that I'm I'm very optimistic in my normal life, almost to the point of like the glass isn't full but overflowing. But on the expeditions, I tend to um, be a little more realistic about the expedition, uh, about the kind of conditions, about our route, so that we set realistic goals but also that we don't experience these big letdowns um, like, Oh, it's going to, the conditions are going to get better and we're going to, everything's going to be easy. And then when it's not, you know, we just feel so distraught, but you oh, want to give up. screws with your, with your attitude so much. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I, I always say that hope can be a, hope is a, is a kind of multifaceted thing. It can be very dangerous because hope unrealized can be very destructive and yeah. um, and debilitating, and so we kind of have this more realistic optimism that kind of borders on a little bit of pessimistic uh, attitude in the sense that okay, you know, it is what it is. It might get better, but realistically, it might not. As it, it most likely won't. I mean, it's fascinating. I'm sure you've read like some of the reports on the folks that survived the Holocaust. And, uh, you know, they talked about hope killed, man. It, like the people that were like sunny optimists, they died first, you know, because it was hope unrealized, like you just mentioned. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Uh, so what other techniques do you Im- implement to keep your mind healthy? Because it's just endless movement you know, eight, 10 hours a day. Like I noticed one thing, you just pile your uh, iPhone with podcasts. And uh, so, so I, I observed that that may be one thing yeah. that keeps you stimulated yeah. as you're moving forward. But w- what other m- tricks of the mind do you use? I mean, one of the biggest things is just to put yourself in a situation where you don't have another choice. Um, and so, <laughs> so often, okay. often Oftentimes we're just in these situations and you find a way. And so, you know, back in the day, we didn't have the luxury of podcasts and whatnot. And so it was just kind of get through it as best as we can. And I always say the best hour on a a polar expedition is one that you don't even realize happened versus the, the, the hour where you're looking at your watch every two minutes and hoping that, you know, 30 minutes has passed and it hasn't. So, you know, for me, it's, yeah, it's a, now it's a lot of distraction and, and keeping my mind occupied. But realistically, what we're doing is we're just taking the big problem and we're breaking it up into manageable pieces. So even like trying to get through the day, I'm not thinking about like, oh, we're going to get through the end of the day. It's like one more hour until um, the next break and then and then another hour until our lunch and then you know, two hours until the last hour of the day. And so I'm never thinking about these big pieces of time. I'm incrementalizing it. And, And even like to think about the end of the expedition on day one or week one, when you're in this, in this kind of featureless environment for nearly two months, it's just overwhelming, mind numbing. Uh, it, it's difficult. And, and managing that time is such a different, component of our lives than what we're used to now where you get an email every two seconds and you're going here and you're doing that and you're you know constant stimulus Mm, yeah wow so 
I want to ask some questions about the North Pole and the South Pole, but just to set it, set it up, I guess, to build the foundation, I think probably people don't really think about the difference. I mean, even though they're both covered in snow, it's radically different. Like the Antarctica is a land continent and, and the North Pole, you're actually walking over these thin sheets of ice and it's just, they're cracking and exploding. I listened to a, uh, uh, on the internet, uh, you recorded the ice sheets, the pans just like colliding together. And it sounds like almost like an animal squeaking or crying or, it's amazing. You're like, that is the sound of ice. It's miraculous. People really need to go listen to that um, after this podcast. But um, so, so tell me about the, the difference between the North and the South Poles. Yeah, I mean, they're really polar opposites, quite honestly, as corny as that sounds. <laughs> but you, you hit the nail on the head in the sense that Antarctica is a continent, and so all the ice on Antarctica is ice that's on land, and it's a big ice sheet. Uh, the Arctic Ocean is ice that's floating on water that's broken up into smaller pans. Um, and so the Arctic Ocean, those sheets of ice are maybe five or six feet thick at the most. They're constantly moving uh, due to the winds, tides, and ocean currents. They're breaking apart, colliding together. Sometimes and they're our- moving the opposite of the way you want to go. So no you're fighting... The, the the ice is moving left and you're trying to go right yes yeah it's like a conveyor belt almost you're 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 you know we would go to sleep at night and we would wake up farther two miles farther south than where we went to sleep still the same ice but that whole sheet of ice is is drifting southward that messes with your head in a big way as well and uh and and in antarctica it's an ice sheet but but realistically, that is only moving maybe, you know, 20, 30 feet a year. And so, you know, when I, when I uh, guide trips in Antarctica and we start at the edge of the continent, we go to the South Pole, I take a white sheet of paper and I draw an X on the bottom and an X at the top and draw a straight line at both points and say, that's our map that we're using. And that's about as accurate as a map as you need, quite honestly because you're really just taking a bearing and skiing in a straight line and, and um, from the edge of the continent toward the South Pole. And, and the Arctic Ocean and the North Pole is a much more dynamic environment where, you know, every day is different, every minute is different, and um, it requires a lot of kind of making it up as you go, a little bit of planning, um, and, all, and, and all sorts of other skills just to kind of get through each moment. Well... So, look, I mean, like, you see these movies like Free Solo and, like, you know, it, they get so much attention. It, it doesn't seem like the North Pole and your stuff has gotten that same amount of attention. But as a climber, like, I kind of can assess risk maybe a little better than the average person. And, my gosh, the suffering and the risk, like, uh, that you're undertaking is monumental. I mean, it's, like, amazing when I look at the the amount of toil and suffering and complexity of trying to get to the north pole uh i mean it's it's sort of mind-boggling and part of it is like when you get to like a peninsula and the and it the ice just ends and then what do you do like sometimes you're actually getting in a dry suit and swimming across the ocean to the next piece of ice i mean it's intense it is right it is (laughs) It's very intense and it's boring at times too. Um, but 
Yeah, I mean, that's what do they been, say? Yeah. Like um, hours of boredom mixed with uh, moments of abject terror. <laughs> yeah, yeah, seriously. And but you you've kind of pointed out the the uh, obstacle of my life, which is trying to get people interested in these places and mountains for for I know what reason. Um, you know, occupy people's imaginations in a much more prominent way. And I get it. And, um, you know, quite honestly, I never really had any interest in climbing Mount Everest. But I thought in order to get interest about the poles, I would just have to kind of tag that on to to my my trip. And that's honestly, the reason why I did it. I now I enjoyed the experience. And and when I was there, and, and we got to climb in the fall. And so we're the only team on the mountain, which was, which was more in the style of travel that I like. And and, and so I enjoyed that process of it, but I keep going back and trying to find ways in which to connect people to those places. I think, you know, the unique part or that leading edge of adventure today, again, isn't necessarily about being the first person, but it's also about how can we find these unique ways to, to um, connect people to these places. And so you know, whether it's that human side, and I feel like you've been very successful at this is, is putting kind of your face in that story and that process in that place. And so I just kind of keep going back and, and keep trying my best. And, and like I said, failing 80% of the time and, and, and hoping for the best, I guess, but, uh, (laughs) But you do a great job communicating along the way. So you have all these technologies where you can, you know, which is becoming more commonplace nowadays. But still, I mean, it's radical that you're in 30 below zero weather and you're communicating back to the world. So talk about that process. But also, I'll comment on, I watched your TED Talk yesterday and there's this recording of you. You're like 20 miles from the North Pole and you don't know if you're going to make it. And my God, Eric, I, 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 I teared up. Like your voice was so emotional. Like you, it, you were flat, right? You were exhausted, but like um, it, your, your voice, like your voice was cracking and you could tell, like, I almost thought you were about to cry maybe. And it was like so powerful because I've been there. You know what I mean? Like, you know, you, you just feel it, right? It was, it was really beautiful. Well, there are a couple things there. First, I've cried my way to the polls many times, so <laughs> that that experience isn't new. Uh, they're they're emotional journeys, you know. And when you're laid out and at your wits end from a physical point, those nerves are pretty raw. And when you are staring down your potential demise, it's hard to keep a straight face. And additionally, I've always felt that I, my goal is to portray the person that I am, <laughs> which is kind of an emotional, kind of boring, pretty average, and, and kind of lay out that experience in the most real way, not, not as how I want to be seen, which I think is very prominent today. Um, And oftentimes that doesn't necessarily put you in the best light. And that's a hard thing to see. But I think at the end of the day, you have a much better 
uh, I don't, I, you know, the goal isn't necessarily the story, but you have a, a, a much better story. And I, I think I can sleep better with myself at night because I, I've, I've done, I've been true to myself and I've been true to, to what I've been doing. And so there's a lot of, there's a lot of bad sides to expedition life. There's a lot of arguments. There's a lot of things that don't go well. There's a lot of egos that are involved in all that stuff and, and it's all hard. And so that's always been my goal is, and kind of going back to the earlier question is, is, is this idea of telling the story in real time because not everybody has the ability to go to those places or the desire, but that doesn't mean they're not interested. And so, you know, those daily updates, which 25 years ago were, were very difficult to do and still require a lot of energy today, are, are an important piece of, of that whole puzzle. The realness of it is just so powerful. I'm so glad that's a part of it. You're right. Putting a human face in the in the midst of that environment is just uh, is just a, an important such an important part of the equation. Yeah, I got to ask I, you just like a little logistical question here. Okay. One yeah. of your talks, I you mentioned that when you swim across these sections in a dry suit, right? Try, first of all, I'm just curious. I don't want to get too much in the weeds, but like you have a huge sled of stuff, so you have to figure out how to get that to float. And you, you have to pull it across as you're swimming. And then I think you mentioned that you saw a shark when you were swimming. Yeah, no, no. Come on. No, no, no. That's a joke because there's a – Was that a joke? Yeah, there's a there's a snow feature that looks like a ice or like a fin, you know, a shark. Oh, okay. God, that would freak me out. Yeah. Swimming across Yeah. Uh, and seeing a fin. Okay, got it. Yeah, so that's that's – a system that where you're kind of on that edge a little bit more, you know, on the Arctic Ocean, it's ice and you can trick yourself into thinking you're on land. But realistically, it's just this thin skin of, of ice over a 14,000 foot deep ocean. And so that ice can crack and there can be open water that that you need to cross and it looks like a river and it can span miles in either direction. And so to get all of our supplies across that water, we swim, we put on a dry suit. And what I'll do is we'll catamaran the sleds together. So that's like a, it's kind of like Huck Finn, you know, like we're building a raft out of the sleds. I'll swim across with a rope attached to me. And then, um, you know, depending on the group, if we have one or two partners, we'll, we'll set up a ferry system where people can ride across on the, on that raft of sleds, and then we'll get across on the, on the other side. Wow. Wow. That's rad. It, it, it's interesting because it's part of the challenge of that type of travel, because every moment you're coming up to an obstacle that you have to, um, solve the problem of how to overcome it. And so in that sense, it can be very engaging. And that's one of the, the things that I like about Arctic Ocean travel is, is that you're really engaged a lot in this process of like how to, how to overcome each one of these obstacles because each situation is a little different. Um, but it's also the exhausting part because you're like, man, like what, what else is going to happen? You know, like my, my partner, Ryan, he's like, you know, what, what is it going to be now? Are there going to be like dragons that come out and breathe fire and try to eat us? It just, <laughs> it, it can be overwhelming because it almost feels like that place is trying to kill you. Mm. Well, okay. So you have the exhaustion, the cold, you know, the suffering, the, the, the mental fatigue, but 
you've also talked about these moments of beauty that are just so contrasting to those other moments of suffering. Like what, tell me about some of those really poignant moments, you know, where after a week of a whiteout, like the sun comes out. Yeah. Or even just being in a whiteout. I mean, they're, they're, they're both ends of the spectrum. I think, you know, this perspective of being such a small person in this huge space is really interesting to me. Um, I think understanding my significance in not only that environment, but also just the grand scheme of things. Um, I think being in these pristine environments that are so far removed from other people is incredible. And just the subtle nature of these big ice scapes and the shapes of the ice, how the sun is shining, uh, you know, snow crystals in the upper atmosphere forming a sun dog around the sun, uh, small crystals of hoarfrost on the surface of ice, huge blocks of ice heaved up into the air, um, you know, an endless plane of white, whatever it is. I mean, there, there's just so much beauty in our planet. And I think as you're out in these places, you start to understand them more. And it's not just being there for an hour or a day, but the longer you're in a place, the more you understand the subtlety of it and also the the complexity of it. And so uh, it's really hard not to appreciate those environments the more that you're there. Mm, Beautiful. And what about wildlife? So I, all right, so there are no sharks, but there are polar bears. Yeah. uh, Especially in the North Pole, right? And in Greenland, right? You've seen some polar, I know you've seen some. Yeah. Yeah. Polar bears are a constant kind of on your mind and, you know, having, having that kind of hazard, uh, that's kind of lurking around every chunk of ice or whatever is, is disconcerting at best. And, and, you know, we just try not to think about it, but we do have a gun that we carry, we have flares. And so we've had some very close encounters with polar bears where they've jumped on our tent while we're while they're sleeping in it while we're sleeping in it or where uh we've had them kind of sneaking up or stalking behind us as we're pulling our sleds so um you know we've managed to get through all those uh and it's one of those things i'm sure you've probably had a situation where you're like oh that was close and um it's again a little bit of that gallows humor where if you reflect on it too much you realize how dangerous the situation is versus like just kind of you know okay well yeah it was close but we still got to keep going here because that's the only way well, out. even if it doesn't hurt you it, it like jumping on your tent destroys your tent so, it can yeah. yeah we we got lucky it didn't necessarily destroy it jumped on the vestibule um but yeah. you know it's it's just another thing in a long list of things that are difficult. <laughs> right. So, and you know, it is one of the, the biggest apex predators that are out there. And so it's, it's something that I think people are drawn to and they're amazing animals, but you know, a good expedition for me is one where we don't see a polar bear. Yeah. Well, so I get the idea of going to the North pole and the South pole and communicating back with the world with the idea of protecting these, these important places like, you know, most people will never, never experience, but what's the internal appeal for you? Like, you know, when, when you were growing up, did you dream about 
being a polar explorer? Uh, like what's the internal, you know, deep kind of uh, motivation b- b- behind this? Have you, have you, have you been to therapy <laughs> to discover what that is? <laughs> I, I have been to therapy and they found a lot of problems. So <laughs> uh, we don't have enough time to get into all of them. Uh, I, I did want to be a polar explorer. You know, I read all the expedition journals when I was a kid. I loved being outside. And I think for me, quite honestly, I just love camping. I always tell people I just want to be a professional camper. Um, I like being outside as much as I, I can. And, um, you know, it doesn't, I I'm drawn to the polar environments, but I I like, I like being outside in a tent, no, anywhere in the world. Um, jungles scare me a little bit, I will say. Um, (laughs) but I I think for me, it's, I, I like the process of discovery and it's not necessarily about, like I said earlier, discovering the place. But it's it's about discovering myself in that place and discovering that place for me. And I think that gets a little passed over in in, in kind of modern adventuring is about your perspective, not how you want to be seen and how you think you look in that environment, but like what are your impressions of that place and how did that place impact you? And so those those are always been the big draw have always been the big draws for me as well as the chess game of these big adventures and putting together this puzzle and kind of pushing yourself in this long drawn out way where unlike a base jumper who is in that moment like as soon as they step off the cliff for me it's like 50 days before i get to that moment and then i get to see like did i prepare enough did I, did I have all my ducks in a row? Is, is my mind strong enough or, or buttressed enough where I can get through this? Um, and that, and that again, as, as I'm sure, you know, is a very empowering feeling. For sure. That's, yeah. That's, uh, you, I think when we were, when we were skiing together, uh, you had mentioned that because of global warming, the North pole in particular may be unreachable today. So can you explain that? Well, the traditional North Pole expeditions that were human powered and kind of this idea of reaching the North Pole were generally kind of undertaken from land. Um, Yeah, you fly onto some, is it like a Russian island or something like that? that, That's a, that, those are the shorter trips. That's the last. And so that's still operational. And I, and, and so we, we do fly up to, uh, it's called an ice island, which is a, a little bit of a misnomer because it's not land. It's just a piece of ice that's a, maybe a little thicker than the surrounding piece of ice. And then we kind of base off of there. Um, but the traditional, and so that's still operating, and we, and we have several years of kind of into the future where, where we'll be able to do those types of trips. But leaving from land realistically is less and less likely and really hasn't happened since 2014 and the last time I what was... land do you start is it in canada where is it like where where's the traditional start would be northern ellesmere island so just west oh, of green yeah. the northernmost yeah. point of in north america uh you know either this little island called ward hunt or where i've left from a little farther south called cape discovery uh-huh. and so um 
And and so as climate change has impacted our planet, that extent of ice has lessened as well as a little bit of the overall the thickness. And so you just don't have that stability for as long around that perimeter of sea ice to be able to support the logistics. You know, if you were to be able to magically airdrop in there and have some sort of logistical network to support you, which doesn't exist right now, no company will do that. Um, maybe for Elon Musk, it could happen, but, but not like me, it's just not, it's not physically possible. I think that the journey is still possible to be made, but there are just some logistical problems right now that are, I don't like to say things are impossible, but they're, they're, um, they're very, very, very difficult to overcome to the point of being impossible. Like, so like with mountains, a lot of times nowadays, you're just starting like weeks earlier than you, what you used to do. Like if you want to climb the North face of the Eiger, you know, you don't right. climb it in June anymore. You climb it in April. So can't you just start earlier? Well, the problem is you, I, I mean, quite honestly, you could maybe snowmobile up to that point. That's a whole two month expedition to itself. But realistically, the problem there is that um, it's dark. And so uh, you can't really land a plane. So we're starting those trips at the beginning of March, right when the sun is coming above the horizon. So we're I only see. getting a few hours of twilight at the start of the expedition. So starting earlier, on from a from a mechanical logistics perspective, i.e., in terms of getting dropped off by a plane, isn't just physically possible. Um, there are some other, you know, like I said, you could potentially leave like you know a thousand miles further south on snowmobiles in like January and, um, and then have a two month expedition to get to your starting point, which was historically what was done. And so that's possible. But again, you're dealing, you're dealing with a multi-million dollar budget and, um, you know, about six months of your life, which, you know, it's, it's feasible, but yeah, um, it's hard necessarily where my interests lie right now. All right, just one more logistical question, which is like, what if the shit hits the fan halfway through that trip? Is there a plane or like a helicopter that could that could come and get you, or are you are you hosed? At the time, there used to be uh, somewhat, um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that plane could land in your location. Um, the ice could be too thin, too rough. You know, that plane's coming from. 600 miles away, you have all this weather stuff, whiteouts. So just because you want, you have the potential to, or you might need to get picked up, doesn't mean that that the ability exists. And I, I have done some other ex- expeditions where we did a summer trip to the North Pole, which was I don't I don't know if I have the stones to do it now, but there was a big chunk of of that trip where we were outside of any sort of logistical support. Um, but that was when I was a lot younger and, you know, I, I had a, a hard edge to me and, and was willing to do just about anything. Right. Right. Well, Eric, so in the last several years, you got diagnosed with cancer and that just like all, all the suffering, all the suffering that you've put yourself through on these big adventures and, and, then, and then cancer strikes it's like you survived all this crazy adventures and then and then this this thing called cancer strikes you and my gosh is 
I mean, what? How have you? How are you doing? First of all, uh, I'm doing okay. It's hard to hear that. It. Um, I. I'm better now. I have a little, like even just the mention of I have a. It, it was a hard journey. Yeah. And I'm still in it. I'm cancer free. Um, Good. They, call it, they call it right now NED, which is no evidence of disease. I have. Some issues with my, in, I had 14 inches of my colon removed. So I have some yeah. issues as I process food and as that food comes out of my body, not to get too graphic. Right. That, that I, that I think will be lifelong, but I don't really care because <laughs> I'm yeah. alive. You know, it's yeah. hard on a day-to-day basis, but in, in the grand scheme of things, like I'll take it. It wasn't too long ago that I was just given just a, f- a few years to live. So, yeah. Yeah, I remember reading some of your um, Caring Bridge uh, journals, and you were in a lot of pain, and you were really, really suffering. Did maybe it's a cheesy question, but did like all the stuff that you've gone through on these big expeditions prepare you in any way for cancer? Yeah, I think I think they did, and they didn't. I think the first thing it showed me was my ego you know like we put ourselves in these situations where we're risking our lives potentially and we think we're in control of the situation and we have enough knowledge and we have enough experience and decision making and physical training where we can control or adapt to these variables but when I got diagnosed with cancer, they first thought it was stage four. And my doctor said, you have three or four years to live. And I didn't think about that I was in control or, or anything. I just thought, like, how can I get two more seconds to live with my, you know, so that I can spend two more seconds with my kids? Sounds similar to what you're talking about in terms of your trips, breaking it down into more manageable chunks, right? Yeah. I mean, that was a big part of it once the treatment started. And, you know, you're on this path towards an uncertain outcome with uncertain variables with a lot of obstacles in the way. And that's exactly like a polar expedition. And so I did take a lot of solace and you know, pragmatic skills to deal with the chemo, all the pain, um, the uncertainty, the fear, um, and, and tried to use that as, as best as I could not because I was like, Oh, I learned this lesson. I'm going to apply it. It's just what you do when you're in a difficult situation and you don't have another choice. And so this was a choice that I didn't have any control over. And so what I've always said is that people have a, an amazing ability to overcome obstacles. It doesn't matter who you are. And luckily I do think though, that a lot of these things that I had been doing, um, applied very directly to, you know, getting sick and, and the difficulty of the treatment, which is almost worse than the disease. Right. You know, so on these ex on these adventures, you are in charge right? You're in control, or at least there's the appearance that that's the case. Yes. And then cancer happens and you're absolutely vulnerable. You know what I mean? You're kind of probably 
like kind of helpless for a while, right? Very much was, so. was that hard for you, you know, to be the person being cared for? Yeah. Um, it, it is, it was hard. It is hard. Um, you know, I'm a self-sufficient person. Right. I didn't, I didn't want to impact my kids' lives. Um, right. I didn't want that to be the, the defining thing for them. Yeah. And so I, 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 we discussed it. We normalized it. I, but it was hard. And so I tried to be as self-sufficient as I could, but at the end of the day, it's impossible. I didn't have all the knowledge. Right. Um, you know, the, the, just dealing with medical system, paying bills, like my wife, Maria, you know, took over all that, you know, she's her work. She stepped up her work to be able to support us because, you know, as a, as a self-employed person who relies on my physical body, when I stop moving, the money stops. And, and so that sickness destroys everything. Um, and you just kind of have to pick up the pieces as best you can and, and, um, and move forward. Did you ever like go through your brain where you're like, I survived a thousand things that could have killed me and this is going to be the thing. (laughs) I mean, there's, I guess there's some weird irony there. Yeah, there's irony, which I love, but I never really thought that, you know, I, I've come to terms with you get the time that you get, you know, we always want more, but I, I felt that I had, you know, done some things that I had dreamed of right. for my whole life. Sorry to be emotional about this. It's, oh no, Eric, it's something I, you should be emotional about. So I got, yeah. I, it's, it's. It was intense. And I, like I said, I'm still dealing with some PTSD from everything. And, and to think back about my mindset um, from those times is, is very difficult. Um, but, you know, I, I, I had accomplished a lot of stuff that I wanted to. I met an amazing partner. I found uh, real joy in, in, in being a dad. And so at the end of the day, it's like, what else do I need? You know, yes, I would like to see my kids graduate from, from high school or whatever it is, or I would like to do another trip. I would like to sit and watch a movie on the couch with my wife, you know, like all those things. But at the end of the day, there's, there's only one direction we're all going and and we're not avoiding it. Um, so I had a very practical outlook on, on my situation and bad things happen to everybody. And there's a lot worse things that happen to everybody every day. So you have some kind of like, feels like PTSD, you know, still when you think about the trauma of what happened, how do you plan to kind of heal yourself? What's your your thoughts in terms of your future and how you, how you're going to deal with this? Yeah. Well, I have the good old school mentality of just pushing it down and not talking about it at all. <laughs> right. Of course. Yeah. So we like all we, like we, to do, which isn't necessarily the healthiest way to do it, but you know, that's a good question. I, I'm still, this is still fresh enough where I'm figuring my path out. You know, in one sense, I'm kind of back to my old self doing what I do 
and la-di-da. But in the other sense, I've just been impacted in this in this incredible way that I'm still trying to figure out how to how to put all this in my daily life. And as difficult as the journey was and as scary as it was, I don't think I would separate it from the person that I am now. I wouldn't I wouldn't go back and not have it as and you know, even considering all the complications that I still have today and and the uncertainty that I have, you know, when I go get my scans in another few months. There's a perspective there that I I very much appreciate. Um, And then I think it's made me a better person, quite honestly. How so? Ah, man, that's, that's the big one. How so? Uh, I mean, I think I I've been on this journey for a long time, so it's not necessarily like these new things. Right. But I, I definitely, you know, when I got sick, I wasn't thinking about climbing Everest or getting the North Pole. I thought about the times where I was helping other people. Right. And so I feel like being able to share my knowledge and not necessarily focus on me, but lifting other people up has a lot more meaning for me now. Hmm. I also realize that, as I said earlier, everybody's got something. And you know, when I was sick, mine was potentially dying. And, you know, somebody who's, you know, going through financial struggles or relationship or whatever it is, or some other kind of injury, they might not be dying, but it is to them a very life or death situation. And so understanding that everybody has below the surface, something that is affecting them in some way that they're trying to overcome and, you know, being kind about that and thoughtful and, you know, maybe asking, you know, the follow-up question versus like, how are you doing? I'm fine. Right. Oh, you know, like, oh, really? Yeah. Well, what do you, what's going on? Or, you know, just little things like that. Um, and I think lastly, like cancer touches a lot of people and sickness touches a lot of people. And, and I learned that, you know, just a little note can have a, a big impact on on someone. Yeah. You know, it's it's people like, well, I don't know if I should have texted or not. And and I what I realize is just reach out. You know, it, it doesn't it doesn't hurt to just ask or just say, I'm thinking about you, you know. Well, Eric, um, I don't know if you're like me, but like, you know, we're kind of I figure maybe a little bit kindred spirits and like you kind of just have this suck it up attitude. But I'm really glad that you were able to share that because uh, a lot of people are struggling with that kind of thing, with, with sickness, with illness. So uh, I think that's, that's great to kind of show that vulnerability. And if I could, I'd, I'd reach out and give you a hug right now. Next Thanks, time man. I see you, we'll do that. All right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I appreciate yeah. that. Awesome. Well, Eric, um, we're going to learn all about you and the show notes, like, you know, how to learn more about you. But do you want to just tell people if they want to f- follow some of your adventures or, or, or follow along with your journey, how they might do that? Yeah, well, you can go to my very outdated website that I haven't updated in a couple of years because I'm dealing <laughs> with some yeah. bigger problems. But it's uh, bigger it's, issues. It's, it's, it's Eric Larson explore.com or you can just go to any social media thing and and type in el explore and and you'll find me as well 
Or if somebody has a dream of doing, you know, an Arctic expedition, you're the guy to call. Definitely. Yeah. And, you know, I think, I think the the bigger thing is, is of course, we'll have a lot more time to chat as we cross Greenland for three and a half weeks. (laughs) Right. Awesome. Well, Eric, thank you so much, man. You are full on no barriers and I appreciate the hour and I appreciate our friendship and, uh, yeah, we'll keep talking about Greenland. Thank you. Thanks for the time and thanks for your interest. I very much appreciate it. Cool, man. No barriers to everyone. Thank you. The production team behind this podcast includes producer Diedrich Jonk. That's me. Sound design, editing, and mixing by Tyler Kotman. Marketing and graphics support from Stone Lord. And web support by Jamlo. Special thanks to the Dan Ryan Band for our intro song, Guidance. And thanks to all of you for listening. We know that you've got a lot of choices about how you can spend your time, and we appreciate you spending it with us. If you enjoy this podcast, we encourage you to subscribe to it, share it, and give us a review. Show notes can be found at nobarrierspodcast.com. That's nobarrierspodcast.com. There's also a link to shoot me an email with any suggestions for this show or any ideas you've got at all. Thanks so much, and have a great day. See you.